What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead today, while Washington battles over a new round of stimulus, hundreds of billions of dollars have actually gone unspent from existing sources of funds. We have the details on whether that money can still be tapped. Plus, with the stock up 400% this year, investors have a lot riding on Tesla's results tonight. Is the bar too high like it was for Netflix? We'll explore. And Snap's coattails, Netflix wants 48 hours more. And Disney battles California. Before all that, though, let's get the very latest on markets this hour. Dom Chu joins us for that. Dom? How many of us wish we had more time, right? Not just 48 hours, but just more time in general. Anyway, the markets right now are in a holding pattern. That's what we'll call it. We've got just marginal losses in the S&P 500, Dow and NASDAQ, as you can see there, just about a quarter to a third of a percent across the board here. But we were positive at one point today, so a lot of kind of that uncertainty playing out, but not a lot of reason right now to wholesale buy or sell. So that's what we're seeing right now in markets. One place that we are seeing a good amount of positivity today is in those Internet-related names, social media specifically. Check out this First Trust Dow Jones Internet ETF, ticker FDN. is off the highs of the day, but it's up about two-thirds of 1%. Many of the mega cap technology stocks are in there, but some of those smaller social media ones as well, that's helping to power this particular move. Remember, from the lows up to here, it was up about 96%. It then fell about 15% here, and then up another 12% from there. So that's a move there for the social media stocks that we're watching as well. And not every single one of these internet slash work from home, stay at home names is doing positively today. Slack, the collaborative work software company, is down about 7%. Morgan Stanley puts an underweight rating on the stock, saying competitive pressures could weigh on that company going forward. Year-to-date, though, still up 27%, but a sharp move lower here in Slack. Those work shares, again, moving to the downside, something to watch there. Not every single one of these companies does well in this kind of environment. We'll see if that sticks. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, a lot of people think 2020 a missed opportunity for Slack. Dom, thank you very much, sir. With just 13 days left until the election, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said just about a half hour ago that she remains optimistic about a stimulus deal. That said, as Dom mentioned, markets are back in negative territory. Elon Moy is here with the latest for us. Elon? Well, Kelly, in just about an hour, the Senate is going to vote on a roughly $500 billion package of targeted relief that looks very different from what the White House and Democrats have been trying to put together. Republicans have a little bit of heartburn over that nearly $1.9 trillion price tag that the White House has been floating. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that his package includes measures that Republicans and Democrats actually agree on. Agree where we can and advance this legislation while we debate the rest. The American people deserve action. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will have another conversation with the Treasury Secretary at 2.30 p.m. She said that there is the prospect of an agreement today, or she said today that there is the prospect of an agreement, and she was also adamant that there will be a bill 
eventually, after that, Kelly, she said it's going to be up to the president and to McConnell to try to get Republicans on board. Uh, Elon, I think everybody expects a bill eventually, uh, but nothing's really changed. I mean, the timeline for this happening before the election is out the window, right? So I guess it seems odd to me that we're still acting as if there's time when the most likely scenario is we've got to wait until the election, the change of parties, and then that could delay this for quite a while. Yeah, one of the things that Pelosi said during her interview earlier uh, this morning or this afternoon was that, you know, in order to get something done after the election, they still need to do all of this work. They still need to have these conversations and these mm -hmm. negotiations. She's now trying to put the blame on McConnell as being the one that's holding up a potential vote with the Senate uh, actually right now set to adjourn on Monday after they uh, vote to confirm the Supreme Court nominee. So unless the Senate calendar changes and McConnell keeps senators in Washington instead of allowing them to go out into the campaign trail, there is just no more time left, Kelly. Yeah. All right. Elon, thank you very much for the update. We appreciate it. Elon Moy in Washington. And we're watching Treasury yields, which have been rising to some extent on the back of prospects for more stimulus, but also perhaps some better news flow on the economy. Yields are up across the board. That includes the five, the 10 and the 30 year yield, all making big pushes over the last 24 hours. Look at the 10 year. It's at gasp 0.8 percent. You have to go back to early June to find a higher yield there. So what might all these moves be telling us and what do they imply for the stock? market. Our panelists to discuss that today, Samir Samana is senior market uh, strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, and Barry James is CEO at James Investment Research. Welcome to both of you. Barry, are you focused on rising yields here? I, I don't think I've heard you. There, there are a lot of people out there who have a strong view that rates are, are definitely rising, and this is you know the start of a big sea change in that regard. Are you among them? Not really. Um, in our Golden Rainbow Fund, we're about half stocks, half bonds, so it's pretty important to us. And what we've had is a, a drop from 1.9% to half a percent on the 10-year. So this rise back up to eight-tenths of a percent is really kind of, uh, you know, just normal. And going to 1.2% would be normal. The key is going to be inflation. Uh, we're still at, in a case where there are negative real rates, meaning inflation is higher than the rate that you're getting paid. And that isn't normal, so that would be normal for rates to, to keep going a little bit higher. And with rates being so low, you want to be cautious because any, rate, any rise in rates is much more um, effective in terms of, of hurting your, your, your price of your bonds. So be careful. We're saying stay right. lower on the maturity areas and uh, stay with high quality. Okay, and I want to, well, let, let me ask you right now before I move on. I mean, does that affect any of your stock market investments? Um, are there areas of the market that you think are particularly vulnerable if rates edge up here? Well, obviously, uh, those that are dependent on, um, uh, you know, interests such as utilities, maybe some of the energy stocks, uh, they might be hurt a little bit. And, and, but it's favorable for finance stocks, of all things, uh, because as you get a wider spread, uh, as the yield uh, you know, curve it, it gets higher, it gets steeper, that tends to be very good for, uh, for banks and the like. So it could be, could be good for the financial area. All right, Samir, how much would you read into rising rates? How much of this is predicated on more COVID relief coming from Washington? Uh, what do you make of the market here? I mean, what should investors do with a couple of weeks of what could be a very noisy time between these talks and the election coming up? 
Yeah, Kelly, great question. And what we would say is the recent rise in yields is probably within the context of, you know, again, lower for longer. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't drift higher, you know, especially into, into the end of next year. But at least in the near term here, um, we think there's probably an opportunity to rebalance out of equities and probably rebalance back into fixed income. And we appreciate that 0.8% isn't a very high yield, um, but it is much higher than we saw throughout much of the summer. If there is some disappointment on the stimulus front, you'll see treasuries do well for a couple of reasons. One, it'll kind of lead to people downgrading their growth expectations. And then two, it'll also hit what people expect from a supply standpoint in terms of there will be a lower deficit for the remainder of the year and less issuance, which would, again, be good for treasuries. That's fascinating, Samir. So you're one of the people who would be buying bonds here at these levels, given the way that they've risen. Let me just ask you, over, you know, how long do you plan on being in this kind of trade or investment? Because you know, very few people are eager for a 0.8% yield, although granted there could still be some capital appreciation. Meanwhile, you look at the stock market, depending on what sector you pick, you could be up 60 70% this year. So tell me what your objectives are. How long you, are, would you be in a trade like this and, and how much money do you think you make from it? Sure. So this is more of, you know, call it over the coming months. We think there's a couple different risks that are underappreciated by markets. Um, the main one, you know, the one that we all keep talking about would be COVID, right? Cases are ticking higher. Um, two, you've got elections out there, especially if there's some type of dispute as to who is winning, um, you know, post-elections. That's going to be a little bit of a risk. Um, Brexit, I know we're all tired of hearing about it. We've been talking about it for four years now, but that's still kind of out there. Um, and then lastly, just, you know, you still have a very sluggish in environment for the economy. And if the stimulus talks do get pushed out into next year, um, there's probably quite a bit of downside for some of the more cyclically oriented part of the market. So for the remainder of this year, we would probably be a little bit cautious as some of these events play out. And then that puts you in a position where you can take advantage of dislocations as opposed to leaning out over your skis. All right. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks to you both. Hope to see you again soon. Barry James and Samir Samana on these markets. Still down about 67 points on the Dow. Uh, meanwhile, uh, let's talk a little bit about the impact to the economy. If there's no stale, if the stalemate doesn't break on stimulus talks, it, that's one thing. But it turns out there are still billions of dollars left unused from the CARES Act package, among other things. Let's get to Steve Leesman, who's got the latest on these unused funds and whether they could be tapped to support the economy. Steve? Kelly, thanks very much. Yes, there are uh, a trillion, well, billions of unspent uh, dollars from the federal aid package. And that actually means that there's trillions of loans that haven't been given into the economy. Uh, if you look at uh, the Center for Responsible federal budget, uh, who we talked to today, says there's $130 billion in unallocated funds from the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the PPP loans that were supposed to go to small business, uh, $259 billion unallocated loans that were supposed to support federal reserve loans, and maybe as much as $100 billion or more in a whole bunch of other funds. There were many of them that have been unspent. Well, why not just redirect that money? because it would take an act of Congress. For example, the congressionally mandated deadline for lending the PPP money, well, that's long gone. Congress would need to vote to allow the money to be used now. The same Congress, by the way, that can't agree on a new aid package. The so-called Senate skinny bill that uh, Elon was talking about, that directs about $200 billion of unused funds, adds in $300 billion more. Democrats oppose it, saying that bill would let the Republicans off the hook for doing more like aiding states. 
Mark Goldwyn, from us, is he senior vice president from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, tells us it makes sense to take the money we have already spent and repurpose it. The real policy question is, do we want to spend more money outright? Now, why hasn't the money been spent? Well, in some areas, the need for the whole enchilada, well, it wasn't there. Critics also charged the Fed programs, and we talked a lot about this on that show, on this show, were supposed to lend trillions, but have only lent billions. Well, they should have been either less costly loans or outright grants or loans from the SBA. Kelly? Steve, what prospect is there for some changes, big changes to be made for the Main Street Lending Program? Or is the Fed likely to just let it keep going as is uh, pretty underutilized? Yeah, that's a great question, Kelly. And Mnuchin, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and uh, Fed Chair Powell were in front of uh, Congress late last month. I, I don't think the Fed program itself can change. I believe they've arrived at a point where they feel like they're giving the loans they can give under the rules that there are. I think what is most likely to happen is either this money expires without being used or uh, it's given back and used for small business and more in the grant realm of things or more in the uh, uh, the PPP loan uh, realm. Hopefully, yeah, because that's a lot of firepower that's gone unused. A big part of the kind of original yeah. game plan that's still still missing. Steve, thanks so much, sure. Steve Leisman. Right. Still right. coming up here on The Exchange, high expectations. In the past three months, earnings estimates for Tesla have been revised up at least 14 times. Can they clear the bar? We've got the details. Plus, the nation's largest trucker, Knight Swift, says it's seeing peak volumes as it raises guidance. What does this tell us about the U.S. economy? Last we'll CEO. And there's a lot of love for Pinterest today as it rides Snapchat's coattails. We'll dive into that. Their shares of Pinterest up more than 8%. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Shares of Tesla are a little higher today. They are trying to break their first four-day losing streak since March. They're also trying to avoid their first two-month losing streak since 2019. But for some perspective, the stock has rallied 1,000% in about four years. In fact, if Tesla were part of the S&P 500, it would easily be the best-performing stock over the past year, year-to-date, and six months. But with the company reporting quarterly results after the bell today, are expectations too high? Joining me now is Tony Sakanagi. He's an analyst at Bernstein. Tony, it's good to have you. Uh, first of all, what one of the most important line items you're focused on tonight? I, I think investors are uh, going to focus on two things. Uh, they already announced their deliveries for this quarter, so it's all about um, what Tesla expects going forward. And Elon Musk has said that the company hopes to deliver 500,000 cars uh, in this full year. And so that's really what people are going to be keyed on. Does the company still believe it can deliver that number? I think the second thing is automotive uh, gross margins, excluding any regulatory credits, 
um, investors are expecting that to go up about 2% to you know, t- almost 21% uh, this quarter relative to last quarter. So those are, those are the things that investors are really going to be focused on. So uh, how would you describe the bar here in, in terms of it being high or low? I mean, on the one hand, of course, we've talked about the share run-up, which has just been extraordinary. On the other hand, they've had a couple of, of, I guess you would call them disappointments over the past month. I mean, battery day was a little quieter than expected. Uh, then the, the delivery number was pretty much in line. So where does that leave kind of whispers, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I would add in terms of relative disappointments, there was an expectation that they would be included in the S&P and that didn't happen. And the stock has been remarkably resilient. Um, And so, look, I think expectations are uh, reasonably high. I think they really do need to say they can do at least 500,000 units uh, this year and maybe even project a little bit about, you know, Elon has talked about 50 percent growth on a sustained basis going forward you know, some some commentary around can they continue to grow at the current pace into next year is important. Now, all that being said, yeah, you know, the valuation is is fantastic. I mean, we have a, a company that is valued, um, you know, more than Toyota, Volkswagen, Ford, Mercedes and BMW combined. And those companies make 34 million cars a year. Tesla's going to make 500,000. And so we do have a you know, a, a stock that has a lot of expectations built into it. It's just a question of, you know, is, is you know, 500 is probably enough. The stock's not going to go up if they say they're going to do 500,000. They'll likely have to be something else, either about next year's growth mm-hmm. or a profit profile that's improving materially, I think, for the stock to continue to work here. Although Elon Musk always has a way of coming up with something uh, exciting to talk about. Uh, In that sense, what do you make of the fact that a lot of the excitement, even a trending topic on Twitter, is still this Hummer that GM unveiled last night? I happened to be watching the game. I saw the ad. There was a lot of of people watching sort of saying, okay, like this is kind of interesting. And it's an electric vehicle. Um, GM shares are up pretty nicely this week. They're starting to act growthy again. What do you make of the competition Tesla's going to face here? Well, look, it's it's natural to expect that as the EV market grows, you're going to have more competition. It's important to remember that EVs are about 2 million cars a year out of about 90 million that are sold. So they're a really small part of the market. And Tesla has, you know, between 20 and 25 percent market share. So certainly over time, we expect, you know, and, and automakers have announced many new electric vehicle models going forward. Um, and that's essential, I think, to growing the market. Tesla can't really be the only viable player. Now, you know, but if, if one thinks about it, if Tesla's 25% share today of a 2 million unit market and that market's going to 50 million units, Tesla could, quote, lose share and have, you know, only 10% share or 15% share, you know, 10, 15 years from now. But that would still mean they would sell five or seven million cars. So, they were in early. They have pretty dominant share. There's no one in the car market today that has more than 10 or 11 percent share. So I think their share does go does go down over time. But importantly, this end market is going to grow, you know, 20 plus percent a year for 15 or 20 years. And that's ultimately why there's so much interest in the EV sector. And there's so much enthusiasm for Tesla stock. Yep. And as you said, you're kind of cautious about that enthusiasm. Valuation at least have an underperform a 180 price target. Uh, We'll see what they say tonight, Tony. And thanks for joining me. Appreciate it.
Thanks for having me, Kelly. Tony Sakanagi of Bernstein. Coming up, tell me if you've heard this before, another street-high price target on Peloton. Shares are selling off today, though. They're down about 4%. We're going to look at the growing battle between the bike and the gym. And with stimulus stalled, the election looming, and the last debate tomorrow night, we're going to speak with the street's number one D.C. policy strategist. He'll tell us how investors should navigate this tricky period. We're back in two. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on markets. They're kind of splitting the difference right now. We are up uh, about 100 at the highs, down 100 at the lows. Dow's down 34 right now. But the S&P and NASDAQ are both hanging on to positive territory by just about a point here. Let's check on the sectors. We've got communication services, consumer staples, and utilities among the leadership today. Interesting with utilities, especially in light of the way that interest rates have backed up lately. Energy and discretionary, those are your laggards right now. Energy is down 1.5%. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. As pandemic restrictions tighten in parts of northern England, new COVID cases in the UK have hit an all-time one-day high of close to 27,000. After the European Union's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, told the EU Parliament today compromise will be needed from both sides, Britain has now agreed to resume Brexit trade talks in London. Just a few days ago, Prime Minister Boris Johnson called them off, accusing the EU of expecting him to make all the concessions needed for a deal. Here at home, a Maryland man has been arrested and faces federal charges after he allegedly left a note at a house with a Biden lawn sign on it, threatening to capture and execute the Democratic presidential candidate and his running mate, Kamala Harris. Authorities say he was identified using video from a doorbell camera. And take a look at this. This is an 85-year-old building in Shanghai walking 200 feet to avoid nearby construction. Technicians attached almost 200 leg-like robotic devices with wheels, and it got the job done. Very cool. You're up to date, Kel. Back to you. A little cool, a little creepy, and a lot of, I saw what you did there, a lot of new news in that update. Yeah, absolutely, there is. It's a very busy news day. I'll see you next hour. Sue, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Sue Herrera. Let's take a look at the Dow transports. Guess what? They're up 20% in the last three months. This is typically seen as a leading gauge for the whole economy, taking a break today. But one of the biggest players in the space is trucking company Knight Swift. Its shares are higher 1.5% after reporting earnings and boosting its guidance. Frank Holland joins me now with more and a special right. guest. Frank? 
Hey there, Kelly. You know, Knight Swift is the biggest trucker in the U.S. and one of the biggest in retail. The company's a bit tight-lipped about its customers, but Walmart is one of many big box customers that use Knight Swift, according to Deutsche Bank. Of course, as e-commerce is booming, it's forecast to grow to 22% of all sales in 2021. And retailers, they're expected to increase their inventory levels in response. In response to that, Knight Swift raising its 2020 and 2021 guidance. And right now we're joined by the CEO of Night Swift, David Jackson, to talk a lot more about that. Dave, thanks for joining us. You bet, Frank. Good to be with you. So first question we have to ask, uh, your stock, despite uh, a blowout EPS uh, results and you raising your guidance, your stock took a dip after your conference call. It actually went to the positive sometime around noon. What do you think Wall Street learned about your results in the last hour or so that, that brought your stock a, a percent and a half higher? Yeah, well, you know, we didn't have an earnings conference call. I, it, the stock started real strong, and then uh, it uh, it decided to go on a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, you know, really, Frank, we're focused on on uh, creating good returns and building our business, and uh, we trust that the scoreboard will take care of itself, and we'll leave that analysis to people like you and others to determine the intraday moves. But uh, but as you mentioned, uh, it was a good quarter for us, and uh, you know we're excited about the market as we see it today. So truck rates and demand, they've really been trending higher in recent months. A lot of that's due to e-commerce. How sustainable do you see that in 2021 and beyond? Do you think even if we have a vaccine or some other development in COVID-19, that people will continue to continue buying online and demand for trucking will be sustained? Yeah, well, the good news about trucking is you know, if we plan to uh, to buy, wear clothes, and eat food, we're going to need to move it on a truck. And so uh, e-commerce is a new way of delivering those goods. Uh, it changes a little bit the flow for the full truckload. But in the end, the full truckload move is by far the most efficient move. It's, it's much less expensive than moving things one pallet at a time as we would do an LTL or in a parcel manner. And so as e-commerce builds density, uh, we see more and more shippers find ways to uh, to concentrate uh, the volumes and and use full truckloads and even consolidate LTL shipments, and so that can have the effect of lower, lowering their overall average cost to move e-commerce goods, which which today, when you're moving it, you know, pallet at a time is is two to three even more uh, times what the traditional move or cost of a move would be to go into a, a bricks and mortar type supply chain. So. Uh, so we're encouraged uh, by 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 consumer uh, demand in in any way that it that we choose to have it uh, delivered or picked up in a store. So uh, so clearly e-commerce is here to stay. I think uh, we've we've grown and and in our adoption of using e-commerce day to day. And so we view that as more and more customers using full truckload for their e-commerce supply chain. David Kelly here. Can you just tell us what this is uh, a sign of in terms of the U.S. economy? I mean, trucking is such a front lines way to figure out uh, what's going on with consumer demand. Like you said, a lot of it is e-commerce. But what's happening broadly here with this demand and is it sustainable? Yeah. Uh, well, hi, Kelly. I think, uh, you know, we see a very healthy consumer. Uh, it seems like uh, the Fed jumped in quick to help the consumers have have money. There aren't a lot of alternatives right now for spending money on experiences. So clearly, hospitality funds have been shifted in other ways, and goods seem to be uh, the recipient of that. And so we we do see robust uh, demand. The other thing we're seeing is that almost every supply chain was disrupted to some degree, some massively, 
uh, through COVID-19. And so whether that was production of goods that was halted or just their ability to, to move things through the, ch- the chain uh, with uh, the appropriate uh, safety measures in place. And so what we're experiencing is is uh, that inventories aren't, aren't nearly enough for where the consumer demand is today, let alone catching up for where uh, what was lost when we were in a just-in-time inventory with virtually no margin for error with inventory. So, no question. Uh, so the cons- consumer feels healthy, and uh, and we see okay. that we see a lot of runway going into the next two, three quarters, uh, well into 2021. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on a great quarter. David Jackson, CEO of Night Swift. Kelly, back over to you. Yeah, and encouraging words about the economy. Coming up, uh, Frank, thank you as well for our Frank Holland there. Coming up after this, could Netflix's earnings miss simply be a matter of timing? The company seems to think so. We will explain the shares are down 6.5%. And Disney continues its battle with California, and it could hit their bottom line. Also, out of stock, we're going to speak with one company whose sales are up 90% year-on-year as Americans look to stay warm outside. It's all ahead on The Exchange. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with us today are Julia Borston, Dom Chu, and Dear Jabosa. Welcome to everybody. And first up, I, I just I have to start here today because, man, what a story. Netflix shares are selling off on the company's biggest earnings miss ever. The streaming giant missed big on subscriber ads. It came up short of estimates there by more than a million users as the lockdown boost tapers off. Now, Netflix did say it could have beaten subscriber forecasts if it just had a bit more time. Its investor relations chief saying on last night's call, quote, if the quarter was 48 hours longer, we would have come in slightly above our guidance forecast. Shares are down about six, called six and a half percent today, but they're still up about 50 50 percent on the year. Dom, I I take his point, but that's that's just not how it works, right? I I wish I had more hours in my day, more days in my week, more weeks in my month. There's all different kinds of benchmarks you can go towards. But but the, the point being, if you have these types of situations where you're talking about the number of hours you have to meet certain targets, I don't know what it means about whether or not the trajectory of your business is what it used to be. Now, this is, in fact, a mature company, right? It's been around for a long time, growing at hyper, hyper growth rates over the course of the past several years. The concern is now whether or not there's a slowdown in effect. This is not about whether or not they're not going to add subscribers. They will continue to add subscribers, but it just won't be like it was, say, two, three, four, five years ago. And maybe that's when people start adjusting the premium that you pay for it or the, the, the amount of valuation you put on a company like this. So, yes, it's a big deal, but I'm not sure that Netflix is going to be derailed just because of this. Yeah, well, and Deirdre, we were talking about this the other day, but they did. I mean, they had monster growth in Asia Pacific and, you know, there's. No, no one expects Netflix to keep up with the kind of bulge that it pulled forward during the pandemic. It's just a question of how big the hangover is going to be. Yeah, and that's why I think that perhaps there's too much focus on these subscriber numbers. you got to look at the long-term growth picture for Netflix. And what I found most interesting about those results is that the cash burn is being stemmed. Netflix is getting closer to profitability, has some $8.4 billion in cash on its balance sheet at the end of the quarter. And Kelly, I have covered a lot and still do cover a lot of unprofitable companies. So this is something I look for. And I think that this leaves Netflix's long-term trajectory 
or you know thesis in place the fact that it's going to get there and that it will be able to produce content again yes there are some you know pretty big competitors on the landscape we talked about this last time kelly disney plus in particular which i think has you know longer lasting content but that profitability story i think is key here and free cash flow. They're trying to be positive this year. Julia, quick last word on this. I know you were focused on those content offerings and, uh, you know, the company was quick to say, I you know, listen, we're, we still have a full slate. Yeah, absolutely. Netflix has said that they were not only among the very first to keep shooting, but they are not going to see any delay in their content because they've been able to get productions up and running around the world. But Kelly, another thing that co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarando stressed is that they had warned that there was going to be a dramatic slowdown from 10 million subscriber editions in Q2. They expected 2.5 million in Q3. This was, of course, lower than that. But the, the drum they have been beating is the idea that there was a pull forward. They pulled forward all all of the subscribers they probably would have added in the second half of the year pulled them forward until the first half of the year. But I think, Kelly, we also have to remember that they warned that Q4 subscriber additions, they expect those to be lower than what analysts had been looking for. And they also warned about some really tough hmm. comparisons in the first half of next year, Kelly. Yeah, suggesting this cloud could hang over the shares for some time. It's one to watch. The ori original member of FANG, uh, there's a lot riding on this. Let's talk some Pinterest, though. Those shares are soaring today after a pair of bullish analyst calls. Goldman and Bank of America both upgrading Pinterest to buy from neutral. Both firms citing Snap's earnings beat last night. Man, Snap is having a monster day. Uh, they're citing that in their upgrade on Pinterest. Goldman saying our field checks, along with Snap's three key results, suggest advertiser demand strengthened over the course of the quarter. Bank of America noting that Snap announced three key results with revenue significantly above the street, another sign of a strong online advertising rebound. Pinterest reports earnings next week. Its shares are up 160% this year. Deirdre, does this help uh, big tech say, hey, we don't have a monopoly? Look at Snap, look at Pinterest. There's plenty of online advertising dollars to go around. Kelly, that's exactly what I was thinking of yesterday. I don't know how many times, but in their blog post on a media call, Google mentioned Pinterest as a competitor, a very, very small one, but in combination with Snap's, you know, blowout quarter and results, perhaps that argument is gaining a little bit of steam. I'm very skeptical, but of course, the antitrust uh, scrutiny of big tech, anything really helps at this point. What I thought was interesting too, um, in September, the Apple iOS upgrade actually led a ton of users to Pinterest to idea generation for how they could redo their home screen. So it's interesting. You have to think too, with more people at home, is that driving more users to get on Pinterest for this sort of idea creation, something like an iOS upgrade. I thought that was uh, fascinating and surprising. <laughs> That is a new one to me. Uh, Dom, I know you're a big pinner. So I, I am not. I mean, I, I, I have a mother-in-law who is a very, very active pinner up there. She does a lot of stuff on there. She's also a crafter by nature and, and background, an art teacher in elementary school in her former life. So, yes, this is a big deal. The, the best part I thought about both of these upgrades was they both mentioned kind of the same thematic elements. That is, first of all, better user engagement type trends and then better advertising health in terms of the overall macro market. This is a big deal because, remember, advertising was cut back such a big deal during the COVID pandemic. Does this signal that there's going to be more of a return, that, that, that these advertisers, companies and brands are actually loosening up the purse strings? If it is, then these companies might be better levered to that kind of a re rebound than, say, some of yeah. the other traditional media companies out there.
All right. Let's move along. Let's talk about what's going on with Disney World and Disneyland and this battle between Florida and California and the company. If you want to go to Disneyland, you might have to wait until 2021 now. California released its reopening guidelines for parks, and those with less than 15,000 capacity can reopen once their county reaches moderate COVID levels. But for large parks like Disneyland and Universal Studios Hollywood, uh, cases have to drop below that level. I think it's about just one. Disney slamming the decision, calling it unworkable and devastating. Universal Studios calling it shameful. Disney laid off 28,000 park workers just last month um, and blamed California restrictions for that decision. Julia, I mean, it's, it seems, you know, we've had Senator Warren and others attacking Disney for these layoffs, but it seems obvious if they're able to do business in Florida and not California, they're just responding to, to capacity restraints. That's exactly what Disney says. Disney says, look, we are using all these science-based methods, health-based methods. We are preventing anything from spreading in Florida. They have taken all these efforts to change the way people move the, through the park, limiting the number of people that can visit the park in Florida. And now they want to apply those same capacity restraints and same adaptations to the park to be able to reopen Disneyland. But if you look at a, a you know, region like Orange County, which is where Anaheim is, where Disneyland is, you look at how that's so close to Los Angeles. And there's just this question of when will we get to fewer than one per 100,000 people. Now, Disneyland wants to operate when you have fewer than four cases of COVID per 100,000 people. So they're not saying they want to operate when COVID is running rampant. They want to operate when there's some sort of moderate level of spread. But what they're saying is it's not up yeah. to us. It's not our fault that we had to lay off those people. Yeah, and the California guidelines for holiday gatherings are, are, are something to read as well. Listen, we're basically out of time, guys. So, Dom, I'm going to call an audible here. And before we go, just tell me your thoughts on whether people who get a Peloton are ever going back to the gym again. Uh, okay, here's what I would say. I, I believe that there's a paradigm shift happening right now. I believe there's a reason why Lululemon bought Mirror. I believe that there's a whole idea that you can do all of these things, still be social, but not have to be in a gym. I personally loved kind of going the social aspect of the gyms before, but these days, I, I'm not sure how long it's going to take, even with the vaccine, for people to feel really comfortable about sitting like three or four feet away from each other in a spin studio to do that kind of stuff. I know, I know. We're, and Peloton shares down today. They keep getting upgrades, street high price targets. But uh, hey, even Planet Fitness is doing okay this year because I don't think there's a lot of overlap between uh, Planet Fitness and Peloton members. There's Peloton down about 4%. Guys, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your perspectives as always. Julia Borston, Dom Chu, and Deirdre Bosa. Fast-moving show today. Coming up, Institutional Investor's number one Washington research analyst says that taxes and regulation are not the most pressing policy issues for the market. He'll tell us what is right after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. My next guest says failing to go big on fiscal stimulus is a huge risk to the economy and could put the Fed in a tight spot. Krishna Guha joins me now. He's with Evercore ISI, and he was just named Institutional Investors' top Washington research analyst for the second year in a row. Krishna, congrats. And so tell me what you think the risk is to the economy, especially the Fed, if we don't get a big fiscal package here. Well, look, uh, thanks for that really kind introduction, we think right now it's really all about fiscal in the following sense. The economy has done far better than most people thought this past six months. But that's because you've had policy kicking in on every front. You've had credit policy, monetary policy, fiscal policy. 
Right now, we're entering a period where we risk losing momentum because we don't have that fiscal engine kicking in. But if I can flip around and look on the positive side next year, if we get fiscal coming back, maybe in Q1, big fiscal, if we get vaccines, then we're going to stick with highly accommodative Fed monetary policy. We could really get a powerful reacceleration of growth next year. The risk is that if you don't get that fiscal contribution, then the Fed for sure is going to try to do more, probably with its QE. But the Fed's ability to amplify a positive shock from fiscal and vaccines is much greater than its ability to offset disappointment on hmm. fiscal and vaccines. So we need it all to come together to give that really powerful boost. It makes sense. So let me ask you this. You're, you've kind of mapped out the next six to nine months. Uh, what about the next few weeks? So when people call you, they say, Krishna, I hear talk about riots. I hear extended election outcomes. There's all this craziness going around. What is your best advice for investors throughout this period? Well, look, I, I think that it's, in a sense, uh, going to be important to try and filter out the noise, try not to be you know, super exposed and very, very high frequency trading strategies that can get blown up. For instance, if we go into a contested you know, election outcome, for most investors, I think, to be honest, the advice is try to filter out as much of this craziness as you can and you know, make your bets in terms of what you think is going to play out over that slightly longer horizon. I would say that if we do get a serious sell-off triggered by some election-related concern, that's probably probably a buying opportunity, right? Because under most of the of the plausible outcomes, we are going to see a refocusing on economic policy stimulus under the new Congress and with whoever won the presidential election. Well, that is certainly something I guess you'd say somewhat hopeful to keep in mind. It could be a rocky uh, little bit here. Krishna, thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Krishna Guha is vice chair of Evercore ISI. Coming up, as the weather gets colder, restaurants are scrambling for heaters to keep their outdoor diners warm and stay in business. We're going to talk to a California retailer who can't keep them stocked. That's next. Welcome back. With temperatures starting to drop, demand for outdoor heaters has never been higher as restaurants try to extend outdoor dining as long as possible. Alfresco Heating saw its sales soar 90% for six straight months. In fact, the retailers saying they can barely keep up with demand for heating lamps. With us now is Eric Kahn. He's director of operations at Alfresco Heating. Eric, it's good to have you. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. It's amazing to me you saw sales starting to spike as early as May. Who was buying these in May? Um, pretty much all of our customer groups, but particularly residential at the beginning of the spike. So who now, okay, there's a couple of things going on here. And I've talked to people who are just trying to get patio heaters and we're thrilled to be able to find one because they're in really short supply. There's also the commercial demand. What would you say is roughly the mix of demand you're seeing these days? Well, I think our three customer groups, residential, um, hospitality, being restaurants and contractors, are all having great demand 
for patio heaters right now. Our customer groups are the same. The demand has increased in all of them. Are there shortages, Eric? Are you out of the supplies? Yeah, I don't think anyone really foresaw um, the length of time of the pandemic in our industry. So the dealers weren't ordering extra stock from the distributors and manufacturers and the distributors weren't ordering extra items from the manufacturers and the manufacturers weren't ordering extra components. So um, between that and COVID shutdowns having slowed things up, it's, it's created quite a, a situation with a lot of back orders. So how much does one of your lamps typically go for, and what's the waiting period if someone were trying to get one right now? Well, uh, the biggest back orders are with portable patio heaters, and um, pretty much all uh, everything that we've got coming in in November, almost all of that is already allocated. So they would probably be looking at December. Um, as far as the uh, permanent heaters, many of which are manufactured in the U.S., I think we're looking at about a month on average. Of a wait. So you can still get one. It w I guess would also be something for people to understand. By the way, I just have to ask, a lot of, I don't know, are yours propane fueled? But a lot of these are. Uh, is there, is there a, a, a hazard? Is there a risk associated with that? You know, this thing's going to blow up? <laughs> well, I mean, as long as they are put together properly and, you know, tested for leaks, there's not really any hazard. Uh, the hazard comes when people are sloppy with gas. You know? Yes, which is true for whether you're operating a grill uh, or, in this case, an outdoor heater. Uh, Eric, anyway, uh, good luck in keeping up with business. Like you said, I know it's been a series of all-time highs for you guys, uh, and appreciate you joining us to talk about it. Pardon me? Eric Kahn with Alfresco Dining. Thank you, sir. We've got some breaking news out of Washington to get to. Let's head to Elon Moy. Elon, what's going on? Kelly, Senate Republicans have failed to advance their roughly $500 billion package of targeted coronavirus relief. They needed 60 votes in order to clear a key procedural hurdle. The Democrats voted against this en masse, and so the measure failed to move forward. Back over to you. Was this a surprise, Elon? No, this was the expected outcome, Kelly. This was really set up as a sort of messaging vote for Republicans to show where their priorities were and to force Democrats to vote against it. So we will see if this really is the last vote that the Senate takes on another COVID relief package. But for now, this measure does not go forward. And was this the second of the two votes they had this week, Elon? It was. They took another vote yesterday on extending the payroll protection program. Uh, that vote also failed to move forward, blocked by Democrats. Uh, so these were two key priorities for both the administration. The PPP was a priority for the White House. This was a priority for Senate Republicans. Um, but both of them, as expected, not moving forward as the White House and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi continue to try to negotiate that broader deal. All right, Elon Moy with the latest for us. Thank you. And that does it for the exchange today. But stick around for Power Lunch. The CEO of GM's autonomous vehicle subsidiary, Cruz, will join us to discuss their latest project. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.